Welcome back to Rise and Rouse. I'm your host, Erin Allgood, social impact strategist and nonprofit consultant. Today, I am joined by my friend, Carol Hamilton. Carol is a fellow consultant and has a unique approach to promoting equity, diversity, and inclusion within organizations. She describes the essence of her work as helping people get out of their own way. As a facilitator, Carol helps organizations solidify the nuts and bolts of their programmatic work, internal operations and finances, and chart a course for the next few years. This planning work is key to getting to the meaningful mission-driven work that excites staff, volunteers, and board members. Through her unique perspective and deep understanding of strategic planning, she has helped numerous organizations navigate the complex journey toward a more inclusive and just structure and plan for the future. In this conversation, you'll hear us talk all about the experiences that shaped Carol and her work and how you can approach your own work and goal setting with an eye towards equity. Carol, thank you so much for being on the podcast with me today. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I am so excited to talk with you, and um, especially because we both do such similar work, and I'm really excited to just hear your story behind behind it all. I always like to just start to introduce how we actually met, and I think it was really just through Nonprofitist, which is such a fantastic consultant uh, network. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love the group that Heather Yandow has put together. It's been a really wonderful community to connect with and meet people and um, get to know people over time as well. Yeah, I feel like I've got to meet just so many amazing people through that network and including you and just so many other folks. It's, I don't know, it's enriched my professional life in a really big way. Yeah, for sure. We yeah. always have interesting conversations and she just does just enough facilitation to to make showing up for those monthly meetings really useful. We'll definitely give her a shout out like in the show notes. <laughs> She's going to love <laughs> for that. Sure. We're going we're gonna to have a little little Heather fangirl time going on. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, so I will just I want to just read a little bit about your bio and um, then I'll let you introduce yourself in your own words, too, because it's always nice to get a little bit more color behind the introduction. So Carol helps nonprofit board staff and key volunteers become more focused and aligned. Um, And working with her, you'll have clarity on your purpose, strategic priorities, and have a roadmap to move forward, as well as the decision-making tools for future opportunities and challenges. I'll just pause there because it's, I mean, really and truly you're doing nonprofit consulting, strategic planning, and so much more, I'm sure. I'll hand it off to you to do a more proper introduction. Well, it's funny when you read that so I've been in the nonprofit sector most of my career. I had a, a one professional job um, that kind of was the thing that got me into the sector or, or made me make the decision to move into the sector. But I'm just reflecting on a, a meeting that I was at yesterday. I'm part of a congregation and right now we're doing mission vision strategy work and we were working on a vision statement and in this case it was a vision of what we want the congregation to be how we want to be and i had put a really boring sentence in there around i want us to work well like i want things to work well and it's not going to stay in the vision but people were asking well why is that important to you and i was like well we want to do all this great stuff We want to be this wonderful community for people. We want to be a place where people can connect deeply and can then go out in the world and and work on justice issues and all of those things. 
But if our accounting and our operations and our strategy and our board and our governance and all of those things and all programs and our staffing, if that isn't working well, we're spending all this energy on that or fighting each other about that. And instead of being focused on the real purpose of the organization around, you know, spiritual growth in this in this case, we're focused on that. And so <laughs> that's what kind of brings me to the work that I do, like uh, kind of helping people get out of their own way, like make it easier. Why does it have to be so hard? And it's not sexy. I mean, I guess people can make make out the strategy is sexy, but strategy is just like, OK, we want to go there. How are we going to get there? What are some steps along the way? And how are we going to know whether we made progress? Mm. You know, it, it's it's pretty simple in a lot of ways. I want to just pick up on one of the things you just said, which is that strategy is simple and it's also like complex too. <laughs> At the well, same time, yes. would you? Yes. I mean, <laughs> it, if it was too simple, it'd be pretty boring and none of us would want to do it. But right. Uh, but I think people can be intimidated by the word and not mm-hmm. sure of what it really means or not want to do it because it feels like. It feels like it's so complex and sure, there's a lot of complexity to it. And at the same time, there's some, there's some ways in which it can be, we can simplify, we can keep it straightforward. Yeah. We don't want to overcomplicate it, especially for clients. Like they, they don't like it when we do that, (laughs) but no, I think it's, that's, that's great. So I just like, you know, want to hear, I guess, even more just about like, why did you choose to do this exact work in the world? What was the, how did you come to it and what drew you to it really? Yeah. Yeah. Um, probably like many people, a somewhat long and winding path, but I, I uh, alluded to the, the very first job I had, I worked at a, an organization that helped people get on, uh, I was about to say podcasts. There were no <laughs> podcasts back then. Help people get on talk shows on radio and we served all comers. So I was doing essentially kind of advertorial for publishers, lots of self-help books, but also some some people whose views I really didn't align with at all and didn't support. And so when I moved back to my hometown of the D.C. area, I thought, you know, this is a time when let me step into the nonprofit sector because that'll allow me to support, you know, do this work on behalf of causes that I really believe in. And I think that's where a lot of people come into the sector. There's, There might be a particular cause that they're really passionate about and they want to support that work, want to move that forward, that see that change. But over time, I just got more and more interested about how people are doing the work, how they work together, what gets in the way, why there's too often a rub between the aspiration and the mission that an organization has and the internal culture that they have, all of those things, which led me to... Um, getting a degree in organization development and coming out of graduate school about 10 years ago, you know, at that point, you know, you have to learn all the things for the comp exam and <laughs> all the theories. Um, but over time, it just became clearer and clearer to me that the strategy side of things, uh, working at the organizational level was really where my strengths lie, uh, literally in the strengths finder my t- of my top five, like Three or four out of five all are in the strategy cluster. Um, so I was like, okay, let me just admit uh, this is where I need to be. And it also kind of took me full circle because um, one of the first things that had drawn me to this particular type of work was 
you know, 20 years ago when my congregation was doing its first strategic plan and we worked with a consultant and they used appreciative inquiry to help us through that process. And I learned more about it and I was like, oh, that's really cool. I want to be her. (laughs) So that's, uh, that's part of what brought me to this today. I love that you said that the strengths finder showed you all of the, (laughs) you were in that strategy cluster because I've had that same experience. And the one corporate job that I worked, it was, it was similar I can't remember. It wasn't the Strengths Finder. Um, it was another one of those that I had taken assessments, and it had said that it'd be a really good um, general, like I, <laughs> like because you've got the strategy, and then like being able to like help people actually execute on it and move forward. And I was like, well, I don't really like the military reference there, but yeah, okay, that works for me. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, Yeah, because coming out of graduate school is like, you can do all the things. You can coach Mm -hmm. at the individual level. You can work with teams around team dynamics. You can, you know, there's just so many different pathways that you can take, you know, within that body of work. So uh, it it took a little while to kind of hone in on, all right, well, what's my piece of the puzzle? And how do you, you know, help clients, I guess, with that too? Like, how do you help them figure out what their piece of the puzzle is? Because that's, Mm. I mean, so much of what we do as consultants, has helped them kind of figure that out. Yeah, I think just starting to help them ask the question of, you know, well, always starting with asking everybody what they feel like the strengths are, you know, taking a strengths-based or appreciative kind of approach so that they can start to hone in on what makes them unique, what's kind of their special sauce, you know, what are their stronger competencies. Um, I think the danger, I heard about, I heard someone talking about this recently that I I really like the way they framed it, where it's like your heart wants all of these things and you're, you know, basically like you're, you know, you want to do more than you can. And I think many, many people who come into the sector always have bigger aspirations that are actually feasible. And so being able to hone in on, you know, what are those things that your organization does particularly well, can build on, this is an important conversation to help people have. Hmm. And that's not going to be a one time, you know, it's it's going to continue to evolve over time. But oftentimes it's like, well, you've gone through a transition. What do you want to bring from the past? What, the, what are those strengths that you want to bring forward? What do you want to let go of? And I think one of the hardest things for people to do is to actually say no or let go of anything um, that they've been doing as an organization. And there's usually, you know, lots of different stakeholders and a few that are really attached to that particular thing. And it's a difficult conversation if you want to actually, you know, let go of it. But uh, to my mind, the organization is better off when once it makes some of those decisions to be able to really go a little deeper on the things that they're really good at. I've seen so many organizations, um, you know, over time that I've worked with that just they want to keep doing everything. And they, I think they sometimes think it's because they're like, oh, we're working in complexity in some way. Like what we're dealing with is so complex. So we have to have all of these different things that we're doing to address these issues. And it does totally lead to that point where they don't actually start to start to name the priorities. They muddy the priorities so, so much and then can't gain traction in any one space. (laughs) Yeah. And I mean, their point is probably correct that they are whatever yeah. they are working on probably is very complex and they can't do everything. You know, 
one thing I didn't mention as I was talking about my background is that I also have a podcast and the, mm. the tagline of it is, you know, for progressive nonprofit leaders who want to do good in the world without being a martyr to the cause. And I think it's never, I won't say never, rarely malicious or I don't even know how to phrase it, but it's like this, that weight of the world on your shoulders. The truth is you don't have to have all that weight. It's not right. all, all for you to carry. And you don't have to be that martyr and you can do your part. Like both are true. And I think that finding that line is really hard for folks. And, you know, unfortunately, people can kind of get caught up. And, and I think what they don't realize is that, and I don't think most people see it this way, but there's a little bit of ego in that of we are going to do everything for everybody. Mm -hmm. It's like, no, you're not. I'm not. You're not. Nobody is. Right. And I think it's, it's, um, yeah, no one really is going to do everything. And none of that change happens in a vacuum. You and I had talked about this when I was when we did our recording for your podcast and that it's so interesting to take a broader look at the field and as a whole because you can see where you fit into the puzzle pieces there or what puzzle piece you are fitting into the bigger picture. Um, well, right. Even me coming out of graduate school is like, you know, I don't have to do teams. There are plenty of people who will work with teams. There are people who specialize in leadership teams. There are people who specialize, you know, there are so many people who can contribute to helping organizations be more healthy. I don't need to take it all on. Right, right. I know I've I've gone through the same journey myself. I'm like, oh, got to go update my website because I don't do all of those things anymore that I say <laughs> right. I do. <laughs> like, yep, <laughs> starting to narrow that focus a little bit more. But it's you know, it's it is. A it journey. takes a while. It takes yeah, a while. Most definitely. Um. What are some of the questions that like are super alive for you in your work right now? You know, what are what are the things that you're like so interested to to dig into or to be just spend some time thinking about? Yeah, I think the one that I'm grappling with and and trying to to figure out how to do a better job of or be more mindful of is how do we really center and infuse equity into processes that did not traditionally have those lenses, strategic planning, mapping impact, you know, looking at your service pro portfolio, those were, you know, probably all created by white men. And so mm -hmm. with a lens of this is a, an objective process where when it isn't. So I, I think just and as a white person having to wanting to continue to educate myself about, okay, what are my blind spots? What are my, you know, pieces that I'm missing? And then how can I invite organizations into uh, doing that work? And how, what's my stance as I work through a process to continue to bring that to the front? Um, and I'm very much, I would say, uh, figuring that out. I don't, I don't feel like I've got, you know, answers for folks. Um, I'm learning from lots of people. And, uh, but I think it's something that really as consultants, I think a lot more people, a lot more white people, let's be uh, honest and direct about it, are thinking about, okay, for my specialty that we've been talking about, how did how does how does all of this integrate instead of being separate? And I do think there's a point at which organizations, especially if they've been white led, need to really focus on what is their, you know, on their diversity, equity and inclusion journey to create a a foundation and probably repair harm and address all of those issues. But then um, there's a point at which they might be ready to then say, okay, how are we doing this throughout? Um, people of color 
probably always wanted it to be all throughout, uh, but I don't think it's a, especially for organizations that haven't had that perspective, I don't think it's something they, they can just step directly into. I appreciate you At saying least that's been my experience so far. Yeah. No, I appreciate you saying that too, because it's, it is, I think a lot of organizations have, I don't want to say jumped on this bandwagon because I think it, that makes it sound trendy and not quite like, um, like it has the lasting effects that it should, you know, but there's so much more of an emphasis on DEI now and a lot of organizations that are just kind of, I mean, I'm getting asked all the time to like, oh, how do we infuse DEI into our, into our strategic plan? And I'm like, well, there's a couple of different things I'll say, which is one, you know, a DEI process is also, or DEIJ, DEIJA, DEIB, whatever, whatever acronyms you want to use. To an extent, like we can infuse it into those processes, for sure, into a strategic planning process. But it also want to make sure that organizations understand that you can't substitute one for the other. And yes, I, I, I feel like I've had organizations that kind of wanted a two for one special. Yeah. Mm hmm. Same. <laughs> and how do you explain that to them? How do they because it or do or do they just not work with you? Because <laughs> that's been in my case when I've been like, oh, yeah, this is not how this works. They sometimes are like, thanks, we'll go with a different consultant. <laughs> well, certainly that's always their prerogative. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think I'm becoming more and more aware of what I and, and partnering with others need to be looking for in terms of that readiness. Yeah. Um, and again, I'm not, this is not any brilliance on my part. I'm, I'm very much learning from others, but, you know, I think that's a big piece and, and learning from others that's often directly, I, I work in a, in a collective of um, consultants that uh, came together around doing diversity, equity and inclusion work. And then we've also been asked to do strategic planning. And so that the conversation has come up and it's through All In Consulting and the, the consultants that I work with there that in addition to my own learning, have learned a lot. And I want to give a shout out to Niako Perry and Stephen Graves and Tip Fallon for all of their uh, work that I've been able to support that has helped me in this journey. So, but yeah, readiness is a big one. And then the other thing that I'm seeing a fair amount of is a gap between where the staff are and then where the board is. And certainly there are big generational gaps um, in terms of how people have learned about all of this, experienced it in as they were growing up, were taught, you know, what's the right thing to say or not say, you know, all of that is evolving and, and there can be really big differences in perspectives across generations. And the generational thing is definitely one of those and boards tend to be older, you know, staff tends to be younger. Yep. <laughs> and, uh, yep. <laughs> it's, I mean, sometimes I've seen it not necessarily be the case, but I mean, by and large, and I've also seen some organizations navigate that really beautifully, you know, when they've been open and receptive to really learning and changing for sure. Yeah. And I think that, so that's part of the readiness, right? Is, yeah. is the organization ready to hear challenging feedback, open to reconsidering how they've done things? Um, just that openness, I think, just sticking with it, even if it gets challenging. Yeah. And so for strategic planning, at least in my view, and I'll be curious to hear what you say, um, it's thinking about it at every every step of the process. So I, so far, I haven't seen that the process is necessarily super different, but it's what are the questions that you're asking? Who are you bringing in at each stage? No, I agree with you. It's not it's not very different. It is 
it is being so intentional about asking those questions. And I'll, I'll tell you, like, one of the things I'm starting to do more with clients is actually bringing in the white supremacy culture characteristics mm-hmm. and and then giving folks an opportunity to react to that, you know, and like how does that show up in their own organization? I mean, it has to be delicately done. Like I can't just like slap a slide up and be like, hey, <laughs> where do you see this happening? Like obviously it's it's a it's a little bit more <laughs> facilitated than that, but I see light bulbs go off like in such a big way. Um and it helps people to like they literally they will come back time and time again to to that list of characteristics and start to engage with them in a way that I I hadn't really seen previously before I started doing that, which has been really cool. Yeah. And I think, again, kind of how familiar are people with that framework? Um, how open are they to hearing what that actually is describing versus them interpreting that to mean you're calling me a white supremacist, you know, um, those kinds of things. So it requires oftentimes me building trust with the organization first so that they're not that they don't think that that's what I'm doing, (laughs) as you probably you you see that. too. Well, right. And I think, you know, just saying, look, I've had to learn this as a white person, too. Like I'm now I'm now I'm able to see things in the culture that I wasn't able to see before. And I think you know, I grew up outside of the U.S. culture, so that I think helped fast forward that process because I always, as a child, I was aware that culture exists. You know, yeah. yes. <laughs> Even though I check 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 uh, check so many boxes of <laughs> privilege within our context, um, because of that experience and because of some other experiences, you know, I was always paying attention to how culture works. I might have seen this on your website, but I can't remember. Where did you grow up? Uh, So mostly in Europe. Um, I was in the second half of my dad's career. So I was, you know, how was I growing up? Well, I was the kid brought along for the, for the trip. Um, But yeah, in Brussels and then in London. So, and from, from age five to, to kindergarten to 10th grade, I was overseas. That must've been a culture shock to come back here. It was. That was the hardest culture shock. Moving from one other country to another was not as hard as coming back to my own home country, you know, culture. One of the places that I, the last place I ended up working inside an organization, or a second to last place I ended up working inside an organization, I was working for an association uh, that served people in international education. So that's in the U.S. that means people who work with um, students who study abroad and people who come to the United States for their edu- their higher education. And so I was I worked in their training department, ran their training department and we were redoing all of our workshops and one of them was around intercultural communications. And so that was when somebody told me, "Oh, you're a global nomad." I'm like, "I'm a what? You're a third culture kid." I'm huh? <laughs> Go read this book. And I, I went and read the book and there and and it was like, wait a second, why was this person reading my diary? <laughs> oh. <laughs> but then another workshop we did was around study abroad, and they were talking about re-entry shock. And these were all study abroad advisors and um relatively young. So like the you could just feel the anxiety level going up in this room. And I had to put my hand up and say, you know, reading about this 25 years or like 15 years later and understanding what I went through back in 11th grade, even this much time later is helpful. 
So you're not going to get it perfectly right with your study abroad students, but any kind of framework that'll be helpful is going to be good. And even when we were in um, in my graduate program, we did our uh, resident, we did an international residency for three weeks, and we did it in South Africa, and we were doing work with clients there, and so really experiencing all of the the cultural differences, and. Coming back, even after that short period of time, we all went, as a cohort, went through a real disorientation in terms of our reentry. It was really interesting. To me, I didn't expect it. So I was like, well, we haven't been there that long. Um, but at least I kind of knew what it was as it was going on, you know, at least a little bit after, you know? So, yeah, it's real. Oh, it's so real. I think there's a lot of things, especially about American culture, that we're because we are swimming in it so often, like we just, I mean, all the time, it's just living, breathing, swimming in it. And it's, I think as soon as you get out of the context of it and you're in a different context, you're like, oh, we work too much. Oh, we don't, you know what I mean? Like all of those different things that we know about ourselves as Americans, but like becomes so much more jarringly apparent when we've gone somewhere else and then come back. Yeah. We do not fetter our capitalism here. So, um, <laughs> Yeah. I've never heard it said that way. That is fantastic. <laughs> I mean, I, I was just, yeah, I was like, why, why are we, why are we so cruel? Uh, we can be very yeah. cruel as a, as yep. a society um, to people who don't fit the dominant norm and don't mm-hmm. fit into the economics the way we want them to. And I think also growing up other places, the thing that the other thing that I realized is that every culture has challenges, you know, every culture if you look at it, you can say, well, they're not doing it right. You know, I mean, and and or every culture has norms that people assimilate that are just the way things are and are the right way to do it. So that's actually common across all cultures. So that, you know, that like, OK, yeah, we're all human. We're all fallible. Mm-hmm. Um, we are certainly over indexed on many things. We are way over indexed on individualism and, you know really, you know, harsh economic system. We don't have to be as cruel to ourselves as we are. But yeah, there are other things that we do well. So, oh, and it was funny. I think I learned that um, doing my own study abroad. We were in Poland before the the fall of the Iron Curtain, you know, the the Berlin Wall and all of that. And um, they would, they, their histories of the United States, I, I bought one. It was like, yay big, but it was basically Howard Zinn's history of the mm-hmm. United States. Mm-hmm. That was their version of U.S. history. And so the person I was staying with, a Polish student asking me, well, did this happen? And did this happen? And did this happen? Slavery and genocide. And, and I'm like, yes, yes. You know, crushing of unions. Yes, yes, yes. We did all of that. And I felt like five by the end. I'm like, but there are a few good things about the U.S. <laughs> and it was such a different place for me to be in. I was had never thought of myself as, a, you know, super patriot or anything. I'm like, well, but you know, we do have the Bill of Rights, and <laughs> we do, you know, we do aspire to have a democracy, and you know, have freedom of speech and freedom of religion, and. Uh, we never we we haven't yet gotten it right and and we aren't fully there but at least we're you know we have these ideals that we're working towards but yeah it was a as a i don't know 19 year old it was a wake up call i'm like yeah yeah yep yep we did all those things 
Oh, like what a great experience for you, though, to have that conversation and just and to be able to like reflect in that way. You know, I I had a very deep seated sense of injustice and and wanting to you know write the injustices of the world, but I I didn't see the full picture. I think until I was much older. You know, it's also that sense of injustice that young people have that always is moving our society forward. Yeah. So you want people. I kind of want people to have it. Yeah. You know, and go through that phase and and then push the envelope just that much further for more people and more people's rights and more recognition, you know, and when you get older and, um, you know, have boring things like a mortgage, uh, it's not as easy to do. <laughs> so I'm glad for, you know, the, the righteous anger of, of 20 year olds. Oh my goodness. Yeah. It's a precious resource. <laughs> it is. I, I um, have worked with an organization called the New Hampshire Youth Movement before. And I, I'm, I'm like great friends with a lot of the folks um, who are in that organization. And they're just, they are just some of the most badass people that I know. And I so feel so privileged to be around them and to, and to call them friends too. I'm much older than them. <laughs> and I feel very grateful that they let me continue to like, you know, be part of those circles. I want people to like retain that sense of injustice longer, <laughs> even when they have a mortgage. Because part of what we need is like, we need more multi-generational action on a lot of different things as, as part of, you know, ways in which I would love to be able to see change happen. I guess one of the things that I like wrestle with in my work oftentimes is, you know, I think a lot of nonprofits, and I work with some for-profit companies too, but like a lot of nonprofits, they're working to right a lot of the wrongs. They're working really hard. And, and of course, there's, uh, you know, there's nonprofits out there that are not like so justice focused per se. But they're providing like for the basic needs that humans have, or they're righting the wrongs or whatever they're doing, righteous causes that they're, you know, working towards. And I also see nonprofits, I guess, as being in the nonprofit sector as being one piece of that puzzle. And it's so I have a hard time, I think, sometimes like zooming in and zooming out to kind of say, I mean, to be honest, like, is this a drop in the bucket? Like, is it is it really making a difference? And I know it is, but I also have, I get daunted by the bigness of it all sometimes. Oh, for sure. And uh, we're such a kind of patchwork quilt to mm. be the massive Band-Aid on, you know, the huge problems that we have. Probably the answer is it's no, it's never enough. And you never know what's going to be the tipping point. I appreciate you saying that so much. <laughs> I mean, just thinking about some things that were seen as, I mean, okay, I'll age myself. You know, I, I, I'm a Gen Xer. I, I'm at the first year of Gen X. And so, you know, mm. grew up in the 60s, 70s. And things that were seen as so weird then or so outside of the mainstream are just so normal now. Just in the last... I don't know, maybe 10 years, the way language has changed around gender identity or, you know, the different ways that people are talking about recognizing aspects of white supremacy culture. I mean, that article, I don't know when it was written in the because 90s. I think it was 99 is when it first came out. Yeah. Or like right. 2001, somewhere right around there, I think. So here we are 20 years later, and at least for some portion of the country, it's now part of the common vocabulary in a way that, you know, and that took 20 years of concerted work on many people's part to bring that to people. And there's somehow, and certainly now that same thing is creating this huge backlash 
perhaps because it's come to this tipping point of a certain number of people are now aware and, and using it and, and thinking about it, thinking about things that way. But I've seen, you know, it's like once you've lived long enough, you've seen a few of those. <laughs> um, so I guess that also gives me help that a hope that if we keep nudging forward um, at some point, it becomes a critical mass. Are there any other things, I guess, in your world that are like giving you hope, I guess, too, because it's you know, part of the reason I put this podcast together is because like, I need to go talk to other people so that I feel hopeful in the future. <laughs> it was not entirely like my own self-interest, but uh, that was a part of it. So what are the things that give you hope, I guess, in this moment? I mean, working with younger people, you know, FaceTiming with my grandson, that probably is the main one. He's so cute. And, you know, I'll, I'll sing the cheesiest song of the 80s, like we are the world, we are the children, you know, but he is. So here we go. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, spending time with young, like I have a, I have um one of my very best friends. Her son is two. His name's Lyndon, and I'm his auntie Orin, um, which is the sweetest thing. And he calls um my partner Uncle Kiss because he can't say Chris. Oh my goodness, mm-hmm. it's the sweetest thing in the entire world. And I'm just like, I think your point though, like, yeah, I want to make the world a better place so that he can grow up in this world. And yeah, so that it's better for him. 100%. Yeah. So um, mm. he's also just t- just turned two. So in that <sighs> uh, beautiful, beautiful place. Oh, my goodness. I love it so much. Those kids, like, they're so freaking cute. All right. One of the things I was interested in just talking about, like, with you, too, knowing that we we're going to have this time together is is really just around, like, how are you – how are you infusing joy into the work, like into the like a strategic planning process? Well, I'm one of those strange people who thinks these processes are joyful. <laughs> yeah. So I, I, I bring that inherent strangeness to the whole thing. Um, I just find it fun. But I think I always know that I'm doing a better job with a group when one, they don't want to come out of their breakouts, you know, if we're doing it on Zoom yeah. or, you know, we're in the room and you hear laughter going on and, you know, stuff's bubbling up. And, you know, I think there, there are things like you you end up with a plan and you end up with your five, your three goals or whatever it is. But through the process, people get to know each other. They get to see the organization, the work that's all important to all of them in a different way by talking to each other. And I try to, you know, bring some playfulness into it. And uh, not have it be, you know, super serious the whole time. And it's a, you know, it can be kind of that analytical side of the brain. Like I bring a lot of that, but then also the other side of like understanding how groups work together, understanding how you can create more psychological safety for people to be able to bring their ideas, being able to bring them through a couple different iterations and um, try to have some fun along the way. I just had a wrapped a strategic planning process and it was with a um with an organization well it's a collective impact um mm. you know effort and so just bringing together a bunch of folk it was place based too so community members you know um health folks who are working in public health schools etc all those the feedback i got as i wrapped this project up was that because all of their community ambassadors were in our strategic planning committee the ripple effect of that is that because I like made it safe for them to share their ideas and to feel comfortable in those spaces where the power dynamics are oftentimes really um, not in their favor, they were able to like develop a lot more confidence. And so they're 
out at events talking to their senators. They're out, you know, like like showing up differently in other spaces that they're in. And I had never thought about that as being like a ripple effect of of a process. And it like brought tears to my eyes to hear somebody say that. I was like, oh my goodness, that's so it's so powerful. And it sounds like that's what's happening in your like the process itself, you're helping to strengthen the organization or or whomever's like in that room. You're helping to strengthen those relationships as part of the process. Yeah, strengthen the relationships. And I think also, you know, how can you bring, you know, words are important and words on the page and, uh, you know, are probably the thing that ends up, but like, how can you bring visuals into it? How can you, can we do a little, if we're on Zoom, like a little stretch dance party or even (laughs) in the room, like before we get started. So people are energized. How can you bring different ways of experiencing? How can you bring storytelling into, into the process so that kind of have different access points to the information. It's not just all about charts and graphs. Oh, yeah. Nobody wants to see charts and graphs. <laughs> it's going to get a well, little bit Well, some people do. Some, some people do. Some people take comfort, I think, in that. And and I, I love a good chart, you know, if it means something and if it tells a good story, you yeah. know. So you can have both, both and. Oh, definitely. Yeah, yeah. Well, what, how, tell me how, you know, what does it mean to give a damn for you? Like in your life, your work, what does that mean? Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. I, um, cause you did give me a preview that you would be asking me this question. <laughs> so I've been thinking about it and I'm like, why do I give a damn? Like, why have I, you know, mm-hmm. why have I shown up that way over the course of my life? Like, you know, memory was coming up that I don't know whether it was third grade or fourth grade, there was a kid who was bullying everybody. And somehow this group of kids we were in a situation and they all like pushed me forward to be the one to hit, to fight the bully. <laughs> I'm like, why me? You know, or mm-hmm. um, I ran into a person who I knew from middle school and high school and he was like, oh yeah, I remember you always wanted to make sure the girls were allowed to play soccer too. And <laughs> so all these yes. things. Um, but I, I think it really goes back to, uh, having grown up the younger sister of a person with a disability and, you know, we were pretty close in age. And so I was just brought along for, you know, when we went to the playground for my brother, I was there too. And also like paying attention for him, but seeing how the world didn't work for him, you know, woke me up to the many ways in which the world doesn't work for folks. And then to want to do something about it, to not just have it oh well that's how things are but you know what can we do about it how can we change things we would have been friends if we were uh, <laughs> we grew up together <laughs> we actually would probably be a formidable pair actually <laughs> right yeah <laughs> i mean i was that person too back in the day i was the one who made sure that folks didn't uh yeah the girls played soccer i mean that was like a thing like I got, I remember being like nine years old and getting mad because I wasn't allowed to play little league or whatever, you know, maybe 10 years. I don't know how old you are when you do little league, but they like put me in softball and I wanted to be in little league and being very, very upset about that. Well, that's so strange that that actually shifted, right. Or the system got its way ultimately because I played little league the very first year that girls were allowed to play little league. Mm. And, um, you know, like across the board and I played on a baseball team, one of two girls, but then yeah, over time it became softball and it became, you know, all girls and went back. I played for a very short time, played baseball as an adult with a women's team and it was just so much more fun. You (laughs) can throw the ball so much faster. 
Yeah. Or and like I don't sus- think at that time we, we, you know, we weren't fighting against like, wait, why did we get kind of segregated and pushed over into this sport that, why is that the only option? Right. Yeah. I played on a boys soccer team for two years um, when I was in middle school. I don't remember. My friend Diana played with me too, but they just didn't have enough boys to field a team. So we played both on the girls team and on the boys team. And that was like such a, like an interesting case study in gender dynamics because the, that was a really nice way to put it. <laughs> yeah. Cause I, I played trumpet and I was the only girl trumpet. Um, oh, yeah. yeah. An interesting uh, case study in gender <laughs> dynamics. Sure. <laughs> Otherwise known as hazing. Yeah, it was, I mean, at least my experience was, Oh, well for me, like most of the boys were totally fine with it. Like they already knew me or whatever. And they were, they respected me that I was like, I was a good soccer player, you know, and then the, um, but the coach did not. Mm. And so mm. I had this like battle with this like middle-aged shitty old man, like when I was probably 13 years old. And that I feel like was a dynamic that has continued <laughs> through most of my life to be, to be honest. <laughs> yeah. Those things tend to come back around, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Never really went away. Never really did at all. Which is kind of funny. Um, Carol, this has been so fantastic. I'm like, this is just so much fun. I really am just so very, very excited to have had the time to talk with you. Anything else you want to cover before we wrap up? Yeah, just I'd love to work with organizations Mm -hmm. that, uh, you know, are staffed organizations that work with supporting helping professions. I kind of help the helpers and, um, you know, in strategic planning or mapping their impact. Uh, those are the kinds of things. And then check out Mission Impact because you get to listen to Erin talk about <laughs> her work. Yeah, the po- your podcast is fantastic. It's You've got some really good people on there. And and I love it when you do the little interludes um, where you talk about your work, where you don't have a guest to. I, I like learn so much when I... Oh, thank you. Yeah, when thank I you. listen to your one on... your I think it was episode 70, like... Um, I've been doing them on the tens now. Yeah, that's kind of I've now created that kind of tradition of I know some people do solo episodes every other. That's a lot. But um, yeah, every 10 episodes, it's good. Yeah. Thank you so much, Carol. I am so excited for people to be able to listen to this. Well, thank you. It's been a great conversation. Rise and Rouse is created and hosted by me, Erin Allgood. It is produced and edited by Steph George of Stefania Audio. Production support from Grace Cleary Morin and Yana Krizanova. Our theme music is written and produced by Chris Marion. If you enjoyed this conversation, please leave a five-star rating and review to help us reach more people. Make sure to follow Rise and Browse wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss your chance to hear from someone who gives a damn. Follow us on Instagram at Rise and Browse and sign up for my newsletter by going to allgoodstrategies.com.